0: Hello and welcome to The Mentor, I'm Mike Boris. Erica Birchtold is the unsuspecting, in my view anyway, CEO for The Iconic. That's right, The Iconic, the online business, the online retailer. As the eldest of four children, daughter to a German migrant father and a mother who was a nurse, she doesn't come across as the obnoxious, pushy businesswoman. She's not sitting there throwing at me all her university degrees and all her academia either. After finishing up as a managing director at Rebel Sport, spending most of her career in the bricks and mortar world, Erica scored the CEO role at Australia's number one online retailer, the iconic. And get this, she was five months pregnant at the time as well. Erica moved into a disruptive online industry while disrupting her own career. The overwhelming mantra Erica carries throughout her career is, why can't I? Some people say, why? She asks the question, why not? And actually, it's probably one of her strongest skills. Definitely one of her best virtues. She has the ability to see the bigger picture and is open to new ideas and can therefore push the boundaries in business. As I said earlier, she doesn't have a business degree, but she has plenty of ambition and lots of skills to back it up. And most importantly, she's confident in her own ability and backs herself. I want to know where this quite confidence come from. Is it something to do with her nurturing as a kid, mum, dad, grandparents? Is it in her DNA or is it something she worked out early on? And were there mentors who taught her about her own innate skills, her own innate ability, which she then got better and better at, and she's really honed that skill. So let's get into it. Erica Birchtold, welcome to The Mentor.
1: Why, thank you for having me.
0: I'll talk after halftime about um, The Iconic, more more about The Iconic, the business and all that sort of stuff, your role there. But, I mean, I think what's really important is, I don't want to sort of sound ridiculous, but probably the biggest online retailer in the country, one of the biggest, uh, certainly one of the ones that makes the most noise, We've got the biggest brand, I would say, and I'm sitting here in front of a, a female CEO, which is great. You were pregnant when you got appointed uh, the CEO, <laughs> the CEO and uh, took off four months after after you had the baby, Yeah. after five months of being at the mm-hmm. Iconic, you took it off and uh, that's all unusual sh- stuff. Um who the hell is Erica Birchtold? I, mean, I don't even know if I'm saying your name right. How, how would you say it?
1: Well, um, my father's German and if I go back to Germany uh, and say Birchtold like I do here in Australia, they would just look at me blankly. So if I say Birchtold, they know who who I am. But uh, it's Erica Birchtold. I have a German immigrant father. I grew up in the suburbs here in Australia in uh, North Epping. Went to a great public school, Cheltenham Girls High School. Uh, I'm the eldest of four kids. I think my leadership role started when I was 15 months old and my sister was born and it's never actually stopped since.
0: So that's funny. So your dad, he migrated here from Germany, Mm -hmm. met your mum. And what did your mum do?
1: Mum was a nurse. Yeah. Um, She didn't work though until I was about 18. So she worked before the kids were born. As I said, I'm the eldest of four. She didn't work throughout that time when I was growing up and certainly my siblings as well. And I actually think that's one of the things that drove me to want a career in that, A, I feel like I helped bring up three other kids because I'm the eldest. One sister's 15 months younger than me. My brother's five years younger. My youngest sister is nearly nine years younger than me. And I remember looking after them a lot, helping a lot around the house. I feel like I had extra responsibilities than what other Well, my other siblings certainly feel that they uh, ever had and and my observation of my parents, they're not together anymore, they divorced when I was about 20, but my observations of, say, my mother, for example, not working through that whole time, I don't think it made her any happier and I don't think it necessarily made the family unit better because we had a mum that was staying at home. Do you
0: think it made her unhappy?
1: I think a little bit. Yeah. And I just could never imagine actually growing up to be someone reliant on a man or a spouse or or a partner for, I don't know, my 50 bucks to go get my hair done or to buy a pair of shoes or to go to the movies if I wanted. I I just never wanted to be um, someone else's kind of responsibility.
0: But as a kid, like, um, that's a pretty mature thing, I mean, uh, to observe. I mean, when do you think you started thinking about that sort of stuff? Like, it's – I mean, when I was a kid growing up, all I was interested in was uh, playing under the house – (laughs) <laughs> and uh, I, I played under the house all the time. I used to follow my mum around. I used to. My mum used to play the radio all the time. Yeah. It was going twenty four hours a day. Same as my house now. My radio's on twenty four hours a day. And my mum, I would sing, um, whatever was on the radio. In those days, there was no talkback. Really, would sing, and um, and I would walk around the house listening to my mum sing the songs that were on the radio. So if my mum was in the bedroom, I would be under the house, under the bedroom. I was like three or four. I remember it though and I had a truck and shit like that and I mm. played with them under dirt. Um, but that was what I was doing when I was a kid. Um, I'm the <laughs> oldest of, the, of in the family too. Um, I never thought of these things. I also grew out in the West Suburbs. So what do you think were the elements that were in your life or in your DNA or in your environment that would make you think these things? Well, think about this.
1: Um, there was look, we're going deep early in this podcast, but Let's there, go were, there were there was one pivotal moment um, that I remember. I was in kindergarten at school, so five, so or five, something. yeah, five years old. Um, and I remember that the kids got taken on a school excursion to the opera house to see the ballet. It was the Nutcracker. I was really in, like little girls are often interested in ballet. I loved it. And my parents couldn't afford for me to go to the excursion. And um, and also I had, as I said, a 15-month younger sister and a, a five-year younger brother, so he would have just been born. So mum was probably thinking, look, I'll send her to school anyway. She can't go to the excursion, but we'll send her to school anyway. And that, I just remember that. I, I had to sit in the library all day because the myself. teacher yeah, like with the librarian and I, I don't know who else. Um, and and I get why my parents would have sent me to school. And I, I totally respect that they couldn't afford with, you know, three young kids to pay whatever for me to go to the ballet at the opera house. But I remember the kids coming back to school, getting off that bus, so excited and talking about this excursion they'd been on. And I'd been sitting in the library all day because I couldn't afford to go. And that is the first moment I remember what it felt like not to have money or not to be able to do things that other people did. And I think that meant, So I think somewhere in the back of my mind, it was like, this feels shit (laughs) and I don't want to feel like this again. And not only that, I don't want anyone else to ever feel like that again or anyone close to me to feel like that again. And I think that really drove me, um, combined with, I spent a lot of time with my grandparents as well. Um, who I, um, My grandfather's passed away now. Nan is 92, still alive. Um, but being around that older generation that had lived through the depression and and really hard times, I think taught me something about a work ethic and just really working towards something. And, yeah, I I, I don't know, that stuff rubbed off on me.
0: I mean, I, I think I might have lived in a dr- like dream <laughs> life. Like, not dream life, but I was in a dream state, like, Maybe it was, cause I was because I often hear that about from people because people often say to me, I oh, grew up in the West Suburbs, I grew up in Punchbowl. Lake. Were you uh, driven to succeed? Nah. Um, I just did what I did. I mean, I was competitive, but it's it. Yeah. But you always sound like someone who's driven by an event or a series of events or a, a feeling or a, a sense of something. Um, do you reckon you're a driven person in that regard? Any more yeah. than anyone else?
1: Yeah, I'm um- it's taken me a long time to feel comfortable with the word ambitious. I think it's a bit of a female thing that um, if you say you're ambitious then it means that you'll walk all over people and that's certainly not what I w- would do and I don't think it means I'm ruthless but, yes, I am ambitious. Ambitious like, is a good. I'm, ruthless
0: I'm, is, that's not bad. <laughs> ruthless is okay in terms of intellectual ruthlessness. Yeah, yeah. Like don't but, don't take shit shit from anybody. Like, yeah. Uh, right? Look,
1: I, I think, yeah, I am driven. I am ambitious. I, I want to succeed and... You know when people say, "Why are you like the way you are?" I'm like, "Well, why not? Like, why not have it? Why not quit your job when you're a few weeks pregnant? Start at the iconic in a whole new kind of um, battlefield of retail when you're five months pregnant? Why? Why not?"
0: Is that adventurous or is it, or is it driven? I mean, is it a sense of adventure? You know, I mean, are you uh, a lot of people are conservative, therefore, in terms of business roles, Mm. um, they don't want to be adventurous. They're conservative. They say, "I got a good job." Um, I'm pregnant, maybe, or I'm going to have a kid, or mm-hmm. I want to have a kid in the future, or looks like I'm just happy with what I got. Um, they just keep going down that mm-hmm. track. The other people are more adventurous. It takes some adventure. Are you seeking ex- excitement?
1: I don't think so, and I really don't like surprises um, at all. I think I just have um, an ability to look at the bigger picture and go, okay, this will be a little bit hard right now, but my bigger picture is in well. I could see the shift happening in retail. Who knew that COVID was going to hit and online was going to be even more important than what it had been? But I could see the shift happening in retail and I recognised it was something that I hadn't really spent a lot of time having to run myself and And I thought, okay, these online retailers are seen as disruptors, why don't I just disrupt my own career a little bit and give something a go? Within the comfort and confines of Australian retail, why don't I jump into a pure play and that's going to help me in Ten years' time, for example, if I decide I want to be a professional director, you know, on some boards of companies, I think that's a skill set that people might find valuable and I'd like to get that skill set.
0: How often do you spend time thinking backwards as opposed to forwards, in other words, understanding yourself?
1: Yeah. um, I do a lot of self-reflection and um, a lot of work on – understanding who I am. I, I don't dwell on the past. I don't, uh, you know, I, I just kind of I use it for what it can do for me. You don't me. feel hard
0: done by? No, no,
1: no, no not no, at you all. You don't
0: have shit on your liver. You don't, no, you're sort of, okay, look, <clears> no, I did go on that excursion but no, I learned something about myself.
1: No, and, and, you know, actually what I learned about myself is that actually, you know, what that, that was the right decision for them to make. It felt a little bit uncomfortable at the time and, you know, and, and maybe that gave me a bit of drive. But aren't I glad that happened? Because that's something that I think was probably quite pivotal for me. So I, I use it as, I don't know, a positive, I guess.
0: Do you get bored easy? Yeah. 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 Intellectually bored? Yeah. Yeah. yeah.
1: yeah. And
0: Like me, tell me if you get bored in this conversation. <laughs> you just, I'm scared away.
1: <laughs> no, but I, I don't like spending too like I, I think I can see where things are headed pretty quickly. It's a bit of a um, watch out for me as well that um, I can see where things are headed and I've got to make sure people come along on that journey um, and, and that I explain things to people or stop and allow them to participate in, in whatever conversation because I can get a bit quick to just jump into, hey, here's where it's headed, let's do this. Um, I think as I've got older and more experienced I've learned to stop and bring people along. Um, Patient
0: or impatient?
1: I think I'm more impatient but patience is something I value and I I'm very conscious about. And
0: were you ever a naughty girl? Like, did you ever do anything? Yeah. Like, give, me, give, me some, give, me some, give me some. And that's why I wasn't a good student. Give me, some, give me some of the muck. Come on, and, like, uh, hey, you're a girl at Cheltenham uh, Lake. Uh, what were the um, temptations? The
1: temptations were always to Booze, take it. Yeah. like Yeah, yeah, 100%. Um, take things. a day off school. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there, Way was, there was a guy, at a, a teacher, a history teacher, that taught me in Year 9 that was walking. I live in Balmain in Sydney. He was walking up the main street, this was a couple of years ago, and I was with my husband I said, Jules, I reckon that's Mr Lacey, my old history teacher, and he's like, oh, how could you even remember? So i tell you what, I'm going to walk behind him and just say his name quietly and if he turns around then that's him. So I walk up behind him and I'm like, Mr Lacey? And without even turning around he just said, Erica Birchtold. And, <laughs> and, and I just went, how did you know it was me? said I will never forget that voice from year, year nine, 1991 or something in, in Cheltenham Girls High, he still could remember that voice. So I think I, think I was loud um, and I think I challenged a lot. So I didn't just accept the status quo or or it has to be this way. It's like, well, why does it have to be that way? Like can't it be like this? And I guess that's the same as myself, what we just spoke about before. It's like, well, you know, people say to me why. Well, I just say why not? Like why, why do I have to follow that rule book or this way of doing things? Um,
0: Are you like that as a kid, as a yeah. teenager?
1: Yeah, I think so.
0: That's pretty unusual. Like, yeah. I mean, like where does this come from? Mum, dad? I don't know. Like, Is your mum like that?
1: No. Dad. My nanny is actually, my grandma. Right. Like she is 92 and she's just moved into a nursing home but she was, um, she lives up at the Gold Coast. Everybody in like the – Kira Surf Club knows her. They're like, "Oh, here comes Peggy," and um, and everyone at Bingo and everyone in the nursing home now knows who she is. She's just a talker and a communicator and a character. And uh, and my dad's a bit like that as well. Like he's a lot quieter, but he is a talker. He loves to communicate with people. He'll just he'll strike up a conversation with strangers. And I've never been afraid of that either. So,
0: so would you say then that um, you are you and always have been? Um, Open to ideas.
1: I think curiosity is the best thing that you can be as you're building your career. Curious to ask questions, to listen, to learn, open-minded to new ideas. Um, I was really, really fortunate that in my early twenties I um, ended up working for Harvey Norman, and I got to work with Jerry and Kate Harvey quite a bit, and just observe them. And that was just so uh, magic for me because it was a business, it was entrepreneurial. They were still quite hands on, but let you do your thing. Um, your role wasn't defined. It wasn't your job starts here and finishes there. It was what are you going to make of it? What can what can you do for us that you know we don't know that we need yet? And so that was just such a fabulous way to be and to observe in them. Where's the
0: head office? In like Flemington, Flemington. So because I've been yeah. out there, so. They're big supporters of the Western suburbs, like, yeah, yeah, particularly Katie. Yeah, Jerry's like he is, but I mean, he's sort of a little more laid back in that regard. But Katie's a, yeah, a, a big advocate for the Western yeah. suburbs, and like, I know she's got a role at um, University of Western Sydney, mm-hmm. um, and she's always doing stuff in the West, um, and and she believes in it, yeah, she's a big believer, in it. yeah, um, and actually, Katie's a. Pretty clever person mm-hmm. you know, like a very clever person and that's um an unbelievable opportunity for you to to work yeah. in that environment yeah she's also open to everything
1: mm-hmm. and
0: she'd be open up to say if if she's like another I, I don't know how katie's but let's say i sort of do but if she's let's say she's <laughs> 40 at the time you were 20 yeah um at, when you were 20 um she's the sort of person would be if she likes you she sort of tag you along mm. on things yeah. and drag you along as well yeah um and did that happen
1: yes yeah And. She really took me under her wing um, and even now today when I got the job at the Iconic, no one knew about it yet. It hadn't been announced. She found out. So I, she, she hasn't told me how she found out but she was straight on the phone, the first person that called me. I did not know, it just had a blank number and, you know, no caller ID and I'm like, who the hell's this? And it's like, this is amazing, this is fantastic, super retail group was never the end story for you, this is the next chapter for you. And I'm like, who is this? And she's like, it's Kate. I'm like, oh, how do you even know? Doesn't matter. But this is
0: great. Let's catch up for a coffee. And so, so well, can you take me through um, what you did there? I mean, wh- I mean, like, so we've got a we've got a kid, um, German father, Australian mum, nurse, mm-hmm. oldest of four. four. Yep. Um, at school at Cheltenham, a bit outspoken, mm-hmm. open minded in terms of thought processes. Pain in the ass probably to uh, the, a few, the, teachers. The few teachers, because you know, or at least at least you stamped your um, presence in in that regard. Gets a job at Harvey Norman or that group. Mm-hmm. Where did you? But not didn't go to university.
1: No, I, I went for a year. Yeah, um, because that's what you did back then yeah, in yeah, the nineties. Yeah. And after a year, I was doing a BA. I didn't know what I wanted to do, and so I thought I'll do art and history, like a Bachelor of Arts and and history and politics because I'm interested in that. And at the end of that year, I just thought, this is heading to nowhere. Unless I want to become a teacher, what sort of job is this going to get me? And I'm not a professional student. You know, some people love that. They stay in that system for years. Yeah. yeah. So I actually spun out and did journalism uh, at Maclay College, private college. It was like the uni course in one year. Like it was full on. It was like 40-hour weeks. It was, you know, 45 weeks of the year. You had to do a lot of work experience in your field. Um, and that was that was really – I've said to a lot of kids that I talk to now, if you don't know what you want to do, do journalism. You'll learn to speak, to write. Um, you'll learn how to type.
0: Research <laughs> um, things. Yeah,
1: research things, how to strike up conversations with people really easily. And I think they're really great skills to have no matter where you end up in life. Um, so, yeah, that, that's what but I what, what,
0: what, what did you why did you peel it off that? I mean, you didn't become a journalist.
1: No, I sat the News Limited cadetship exam and they take, I think, four people and thousands of people sit that and I came fifth. And I only found out I came fifth because some bloke called me and said, oh, my mate runs that exam and said, you miss out by one spot and I'm looking at doing this and that. And thank God I didn't get that because I think I'd be earning about 50 grand a year writing, I don't know, crime reports or something down on Old Street. (laughs) But, um, but yeah, uh, and so I used the PR angle of that um, diploma um, and got a job at a computer games company actually in Epping near where I lived called Activision. Knew nothing about computer games but was writing the press releases and then got into a sales job and that's where I was exposed to the Harvey Norman business, selling them stuff. And I just thought I love this business. Like Harvey Norman is awesome. It's entrepreneurial. They've got friendly, nice people. Um, They let people make money. I, I want part of that sort of world.
0: And then, boy, yeah, but like okay, you said, oh, you identified Harvey mm. Norman Group as somewhere you'd like to work because of yeah. your, your exposure to them when you were selling them gaming, yes, games, yep. etc. Yep. Et well, and or and or the business was selling them. Yeah. You were involved with the business. How did you get a gig at Harvey Norman? Did do they yeah. advertise, or were, you, no, no, were no. you hunting them down, or did you so ring there's them a, up?
1: There's a guy called John Slacksmith who was the franchisee uh, at Balgala, Harvey Norman Balgala, and he actually gave me my first order. And a few years later after I'd gone into IT distribution and, and been servicing Harvey Norman account and he ended up the general manager of computers there, it was around the year 2000 and I used to just literally call him every single week and just say, John, I really want to work for you. John, I really want to work for you. John, come on, there's got to be a category. And finally they gave me, it was the smallest little category category no one else really wanted. It was called peripherals and it that basically means all the shit that no one else wants to look after. So mice, keyboards, office furniture, paper. And then there was this little category that everybody said was not going to do anything and it was called digital cameras. Um, and I thought, I reckon there's something in this. And unbeknownst to me, Kate had been travelling the globe and just saw that that was going to be the next big thing. And so I got to work quite closely with her in trying to blow up that whole category for Harvey Norman um, and, yeah, did that. You and know, I find
0: that really uh, sort of fascinating because I remember when um, online first came on, Jerry used to get up and say, it's never going to work, people want to go to stores, <laughs> bricks and mortar, blah, blah, blah. And I think, Jerry, mate, you're talking your own shop here, mate. Um, <laughs> and, but I used to think of myself about Kate. She's not like, she's very progressive mm-hmm. um, and, and, and a big thinker. And so yeah. I'm not surprised that she would have been travelling somewhere around the world yeah. and would have seen these things because that's what they did a lot of, she in yes. particular. Um, so what you're saying to me is that she was on it anyway.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. She, she was on to that and knew that it was something they had to pursue and I, I was fortunate. Um, you know, there's a little bit of luck sometimes in you're in the right spot at the right time and I was fortunate I got to go along for the start of that ride. And but how
0: did you get in there? So, so, so John ended up giving me a job. Yeah, you got the job at, yep. the, at the franchise. Yep.
1: Oh no no! This was at head office then. Oh. He he was he'd moved from the franchise to the head office. Oh, so
0: this is Pringles. Yeah, what call yeah, it, at yeah. The at office. the head office. Yeah. Yep. So okay, so this is the mob at head office. And so then I was
1: all- sitting a couple of offices round from Jerry ah, okay. and Kate. Yeah. Okay,
0: okay. And then they see you every day. Yeah, you see Jerry in
1: the kitchen every day. You yeah, have a bit of a chat. Yeah. And, yeah. You know, the, the, there was a colleague of mine at the time um, who ran the biggest category. And he used to say to me, because he'd see me just have a natural sort of conversation with Jerry or Kate, like just, hey, how are you going? What did you do on the weekend, whatever? And everyone else would get a little bit fearful or something sometimes. And, and he used to say to me, Erica, I'm much smarter than you. I can do better spreadsheets and stuff, but you'll go further because you're a better networker. And I was like, why the hell would I want to do the spreadsheets? I want someone else to do those for me and then I'll have a look at them and figure out what to do. And I just thought. You said that dream? Yeah, yeah, I did. Yeah, we had a. Like a sibling rivalry, and but um, you
0: weren't really. In, so I networking. wasn't networking. I'm was yeah, just yeah. being friendly. Yeah, because I mean, a lot of people, you know, in our audience, that, mm. I don't think they really understand what networking means. I don't. No. Um but people think, oh, well, she got there because she was good at networking. But I don't think that's really how you got to the to the role the cl- role where you got closer mm. to Jerry and Kate um, by networking them. You were just open again. I was
1: just. Persistent and open. And, I've been happy
0: yeah. to. Uh, yeah. So, in other words, you weren't floored every time Jerry Harvey walked past. No, no, I was. Yeah, you just say, Oh, how are you going? Yeah. And by I mean, the way, that's what he'd be happy with.
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly.
0: He doesn't like want I, you to go, Oh,
1: I just walked you from our office now, ran into Tony Shepard, you know? Yeah, for, yeah. Yeah, saw him on. Hey, g'day, Tony. How are you going? How's the stadium going? What's it? You've been hassled in the press again lately? No, all good.
0: Sometimes um, we have innate skills or innate abilities mm. that we just take for granted. Mm hmm. And I, I'm just watching how comfortable you are talking about these things. It's like it's second nature to you. It's not, not a big deal. It's like it's not as though it's anything you achieved. Um, but in actual fact, while she might be the CEO of Iconic, you achieved the ability to go and sit in front of sit alongside Katie Page and uh, Jerry Harvey, who whether you call them mentors or not, but mm-hmm. they were people you learned from. Yeah. But in order to learn from them, you had to establish a platform with them. Yeah. And your your such a second nature person. Even a school teacher mm. remembers you. Yeah. So you're to this is second nature to you. Yeah. But you back yourself into situations, mm. and you don't, you don't you don't get overawed by anything. And but no. you also make sure you understand the the deal. Yeah. You've got to develop that. That's a a, a process, mm. and it's, that's a real skill.
1: I think um, someone said recently that bravery is more important than confidence, because if you wait until you're confident to try something, you may never actually try it. Just be brave enough to have a go. So when I was at college, uh, you had to do work experience in your field. Everybody said no one, John Laws did not take uh, work experience students and he was king of the airways back then, right, in the 90s. I was like, I want to see how he does what he does. And, you know, one night I typed up a letter and my resume and someone that I knew that lived in the eastern suburbs says, I know where he lives. I know he's on well, Queen Street, Street Wallah. Yeah, right? So I just went, well, I'm going to type up a letter. I'm going to put it in his letterbox and um, and see whether he'll take me because I don't know how else to get in contact with it. So I type it up. So then I get to his house. I didn't know that a lot of wealthy people or big houses like that, they don't actually have letterboxes. Like it's, you don't just walk up like in the suburbs and go, oh, let me just put this in the letterbox. It's like I don't know how they get their mail. Maybe they all have PO boxes or something. And it was raining and I'm like, what the hell am I going to do? So I drive down to the BP down at Bondi Junction, ask him for a plastic bag, I chuck my resume and letter in this plastic bag with a little rock and I chuck it over the fence and just go, okay, what it, it's in the hands of the gods, whatever will be, will be. A week later I got a call from his assistant saying, Mr Laws has said that he'll have you for work experience um, You know, in his studio and I got to sit there all week watching him control the panel, play with the dolls, like just do and I was like, this is amazing. Like I and I think I don't know, is that a bit of rebellion or something that I was like I was told I couldn't do it. And so that drove me more. I, I don't know. Or
0: you tell me, did you did when, when they someone told you can't do it, did you say fuck that I can do it? Or yeah, or, I, I think I just, went, well, did you just say why
1: can't I do it? Well
0: yeah, maybe it's another way. You said mm. why can't I? Yes. It's not the fuck that. Yeah. Because rebellion can sort of create to me anyway, negative sort of feelings. Yeah. But if you're the sort of person who says, well, why can't I? So mm. it's like a self-empowerment. Like a lot of people don't self-empower themselves. A lot of yeah. people always say, I can't do that. Yeah. I'll never be able to do that. Whereas yeah. you said, Katie's like that. Katie's yeah. always, I can do that. Yeah. She also tell you, you can do that. Yes. Um. And, yeah. and as a result of that, you, you know, you feel like you're six feet tall. Mm. Is that because you got exposed to people telling you you could? Did your mum and dad always say, come on, Eric, you can do this?
1: My grandparents did a they lot. They did, right. Yeah. My, I think my mum was too busy with four kids that, um, you know, she she wasn't the big cheer squad, so to speak. My nan was, though, and my granddad was. I was the eldest grandchild. They were so proud as punch. And, yeah, and so they really drove me to believe in myself. So, yeah, I think. I
0: think and, is, and and every time you do achieve something, mm. you sort of create another layer of I believe in myself, I can do this. Yeah, I think so. And it so. becomes second nature. Yeah,
1: I, I, think, I think so. I think
0: people like you, I mean, there's not. And it's a rarer thing, but mm. people like you, it is second nature and you can take it for granted over a certain period of time. And you, mm. you know, our audience are dying to know how does someone without a degree come from the Western suburbs, a migrant father and a nurse as a mum, I oldest of four kids, blah, 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 got to stand and mm. work with Katie Page and Jerry Harvey. Well, that in itself is an achievement mm. at 20. Yeah. Um, uh, then, it, then ended up getting a job at the Iconic as the CEO of the mm. joint. And um, you obviously talked them into it too. Yeah. I mean, when I say talked them into it, yeah, you talked your way into these this, this job. Yeah, I can mean, I can you tell me about that? So, what was that experience? Was there an application form? What, what no,
1: no, no, no. I, I, so I'd been at so firstly, Harvey Norman in the early 2000s bought majority share of Rebel Sport. Yep. So I'd been at Harvey Norman for three years or so, and and they'd always said to me, after two years, you're going to get a bit bored and they actually got a time extension in me by switching categories on me. I went around their software category. So I call that time extension. And sure enough, after three years, I was like, oh, I'm starting to get a bit bored. And at that same time, they put a guy, Stephen Heath, in over at Rebel Sport to run that. He was one of their Harvey Norman people, like franchisee. Great. Stop kind of staring
0: it. me in the lip because I got punched in the mouth this morning. It's okay. Oh,
1: I'm not staring at you. Oh, I thought
0: you were like a fellow. You're staring Oh, what
1: did you get punched I was sparring. and just got punched in punch? the mouth. Oh, okay. It's okay. But oh, it was like exercise, not like just walking down the street?
0: No, 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 no. It, was not <laughs> some, no, it wasn't random. <laughs> there was, it was no. no
1: woman that came and slapped you across no, the I,
0: face. I could be covering up. No, but I got punched in the mouth <laughs> by no, the coppers this no. morning. Sorry, go
1: ahead. Um, so, Stephen. <laughs> at that time as well, had been asking them, hey, what's happening with Erica? Like is she? And I didn't even know him that well but whatever he'd observed in me, he thought I think she'd be really great to come over to Rebel. And Jerry was furious. Um, he did not want me to go over because he wanted me to run one of their franchises and, and do something else at Harvey Norman. And so he ended up saying, fine, she, she can go over but not for a cent more than what she's on now um, and that's that. And so I went, okay, I think he thought I'd say no because I was going into a much bigger role, all of a sudden managing big teams of people and, and really trying to drive a business. Um, and I just went, okay, fine. And after two I found it actually in my filing cabinet the other day. I wrote a 12-page a document called The Remuneration Project of Erica Birchtold to convince him why I deserved a pay rise after two years. <laughs> and I got it. I got to it. Jerry or the other dude? To Jerry. Yeah, yeah. To Jerry. Stephen helped me, you know, he edited it and, and said, yep, okay, He's had a position it to Jerry. Um, but that was really great for me. Like I got to really sink my teeth into that. That was the inflection point in my career. Harvey Norman were then selling to private equity after a few years. We'd done, I like to say, we did such a great job that private equity gave him a lot more money than what he paid for that business. And that's when I decided to opt out. Uh, I spent a year at David Jones. I knew Mark McGinnis. He had said, come over on board here. I don't have a role for you yet. I'll just create this role for you. And and I'd met Mark through some other, you know, like suppliers and things. And so I went to DJs for a year and that. Um,
0: was well, Mark there then?
1: Yes, yep. Um, and Another
0: Grey Roosters fan. Yes, that's I was it. on the board. Mark was on the board with me for a yeah. while.
1: Well, I'm very appreciative to Mark for getting me out of Rebel at that time and, and not working for private equity at that time and into DJs. But I learned a lot about myself that year. And I learned that it was okay to say I have a big appetite and capacity for output, like I like to do a lot. I like to lead teams of people. I think at that age I was 30, 31, I thought it was too arrogant to say, oh, I like leading groups of people, but actually that's what I like. It's what I'm good at. I build teams, I get them motivated, we succeed, and and that that's just what I love. And I, I didn't have a role like that at DJs. So after a year I left And and said, sorry, Mark, like it's just, you know, and and it was all good. Like he and I still chat now um, and went to a company called Specialty Fashion Group, was working in women's apparel and stuff there. That was a great learning experience too. And then Super Retail Group tapped me on the shoulder and said, we're thinking of either opening our own sports retailer or buying Rebel, what do you think? And so I was just sitting down with Peter Bertels, who was the CEO at the time, just going, Yeah, well, look, you know, I I would do this or I actually think you'd buy Rebel even though it's going to cost you a lot, you you know, get off to a standing start and and et cetera, et cetera. And then eventually he was like, okay, we've decided to buy Rebel. I'm like, excellent, well done. And he said, and we'd like you to run it for us. I was like, what? I didn't even know that you were even – like that did not even cross my mind that I was almost being interviewed in all these. I just thought I was helping out a friend of a friend by talking to them about the sport industry and so that's how I ended up working for Super Retail Group then as managing director of Rebel for seven and a half years. And I'd had two children during that time. We, My husband and I thought about having a third. I was getting a bit older. I thought it's now or never. Uh, and I was at a dinner one night with, I don't know, some consultancy company and they had um, some, some guy that used to work for Amazon just at this dinner. I thought, oh, that's interesting. Like I'd like to hear from someone like that. It was a small intimate dinner and at that dinner there was um, a guy from Temple and Webster, nice guy Mark who I get along with and Patrick Schmidt who is now my boss at The Iconic. He'd been the CEO of The Iconic, had been promoted into a lead, like a group role and was looking to essentially replace himself as CEO. And I had a little conversation with him, had a chat and a month later I got a call from him saying um, I'd like to talk to you about the CEO role of the iconic I was like what like I'm not even look I'm thinking of having another baby like I'm I'm not looking for a another job right now but I thought all right I'll go have a chat to him see what he's got to say and and I'd had a few other people approach me about jobs but they weren't very interesting they were just a bit same same as what I'd done and but then this iconic thing came along and I just thought I just need to have a go at this I just need to have a crack and I and and I so I had to say to these people um to the iconic Look, yes, I'm happy to do the role. Now, I know the way the law works and I know, you know, what what you're supposed to say right now, but I'm just going to be really transparent. I'm probably having a baby next year. It was so early days that I didn't even know for sure. I'm probably having a baby next year around June. Um, If that's a problem for you, I get that we're not supposed to have this conversation, but if that's a problem, it's cool. Let's just shake hands, walk away, nice to meet and maybe our paths will cross later. And they just said to me, no, Erica, you're the right person for the role. So, of course, we'll make it work. Like, you know, you'll come on. And I only ever took like 10 weeks off as mat leave anyway. Um, and, yeah, and so I was like, wow, that's that's pretty cool that they're willing to back me uh, in this role. And I'm really excited about that opportunity. And I, I really felt like that was something I was stepping towards. Um, and Your uh, whole career. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And I just thought, yeah, this is – this is going to be – I just felt there was something about that company and uh, and it, it's such a special business. I, I feel so honoured to be able to lead that business because it's just – I know we'll talk about that later on this podcast, but it's just got such a great culture, such a great bunch of people. I think I truly believe we're the future of retail and I feel so honoured that this retail industry that I love, I get to play a role of helping lead it into the future.
0: People – like you, and the only reason I say that is because I think I might be a little bit like you in some respects, but um, we don't, we're, sometimes we're not conscious of our limitations, whether it's age or whatever it is. We, we don't, be, we're not really conscious of any of those things, which is one of the reasons why you throw the, put the mm. stone in the plastic bag and throw it over um John mm. Law's fence because, mm. you know, people who are really conscious of those things might say, oh, shit I might get into trouble mm. or uh, the police might walk past or um, he be, could be offended. Yeah, their limitations were, yeah. and and I think if you overthink those limitations, mm. you don't take the you don't go on the adventure.
1: Yes, yep. Look, the biggest advice I've given to people when they ask me about oh how do you like have a young family, have a big job or whatever, I just say don't overthink it. Like, yeah, just. Do not stop and think about it because if you actually do, it's too mad to even contemplate. So just roll with it. Yeah. Trust, look, I trust, I'm a clever enough person. So is my husband. We'll figure it out. Yeah, there's going to be moments that are hard. So what? Everyone's got hard stuff that happens in life. Just get on with it and, you know, off we go. I,
0: I I'm all, We're going to go to half time. But um, I, I find you a fascinating person to talk to. You're really easy to talk to. Like, I mean, I think <laughs> that's one of your big assets. I mean, I don't know what your skill base is because I don't know retail like you do, but... Um, your, I don't know if you've always had this. You probably had as a kid too. It Sounds like uh, your school teacher remembers you like this anyway. It's just something you have. It just naturally rolls, um, and it's easy, just easy to talk to you mm. so much so that I forgot what fucking time it is. So we're <laughs> going to go to the break. Pardon my swearing. We're going to go to the break, and we're going to come straight back All right. with Erica Birchstold. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Back from the break i'm here with erica erica is the ceo of the, the iconic um we went just went through a discussion about how she got to that role um and i find it quite fascinating for anyone listening to this who has aspirations of doing these sorts of things and, and running these sorts of careers you've got to develop the sort of personality that someone like Erica has so that's whole objective of having her here today and, and um, i feel quite honored to have someone of her ilk here so thank you very much erica let's just talk about the iconic I mean, for a start, the name, Um, where did that name come from? It is such a good name, like it's ridiculous.
1: Yeah, when when I talked to one of the ex-founders of the business, I think they had a few different names that they were floating around. There was something called the wardrobe or something like that and – um, and I, I don't know how they landed on the iconic.
0: It's a great um, name. It's, it's, so, it's so good. It's, and it's called The Iconic. Yes. You know, it's, like yeah. it's not iconic, it's yeah, the yeah. iconic. Yeah. And and can you just take, take me right back to like, who were the dudes who first kicked it off? Like, mm. the founders? I mean, yeah. what, what were they thinking? What, what do you know much about that?
1: Yeah. I- there were four of them. I only know one of them, Adam Jacobs, who's um, here in Sydney. They're and no Adam, longer
0: founders. They're no longer no, involved. No, no, in they're business. no longer yep,
1: yep. involved. Um, he's a very entrepreneurial guy, though. He's created another business called Hatch, which is um, like kind of a student recruitment sort of business. I'm not doing it justice. Sorry, Adam. Um, but anyway, I talked to Adam and the way I like to talk about the journey of the iconic, we're 10 years old this year yep. and the first couple of years was that bunch of founders sitting around kind of saying, is there an opportunity for an online fashion retailer in Australia? Let's give it a crack and see what happens. And after a couple of years they went, yeah, we think there's something in this. We actually think that maybe we should really give this a go and bring on someone else to help us with this. And that's when they brought on a guy called Patrick Schmidt, uh, who's my boss now, um, as CEO, and and he was CEO for five years. And they just put their foot down and just went after market share And really grew the business. All I had to do back then was add more brands, more products. And it just it was fly. Yeah, yeah. And but it just flew. Like the growth that they had, there was a lot of money invested. And and the interesting learning for me, having come from public companies, is that um, you know, the the bottom line for these companies is not as big a focus as what it is for other more established businesses. It's certainly something you have an eye on, but you're really trying to establish a business and get market share and get customers. Can
0: we just underline that for a second? Mm. That's really important. Mm. Because in in relative terms, mm-hmm. Harvey Norman used to be called Norman Ross. Yep. Um it was uh and I'll probably go on. Norman Ross uh,
1: discounts, I think. Yeah, it was. And yep. We're
0: probably going back forty five years mm. or so, probably maybe even more. Um, David Jones, I saw, just had some sort of mad, mad birthday the other day, or, yeah. or like hundred and something years of age. Was it one
1: seventy five. Yeah, it's ridiculous. So they go crazy,
0: yeah. and yeah. Uh, and there was a feature mm. showing the old David mm. Jones dude. Yeah. Um, and and these are businesses have been around a hell of a long time, and they had mm. market share, but the Iconics ten years old.
1: Yeah.
0: Um, in terms of retail market share, um, uh, online retail market share, they're probably one of the biggest in Australia. Yeah. yeah. You're correct. Yep. And then in terms of overall market share, retail market shares, I don't know are they ranking up there with the David Joneses and Uh we we be
1: getting closer to closer them. Closer to them. They've got other product categories that we don't necessarily play in, but we're we're running hard at some of that. But
0: you, you and you don't sell like um, electrical and stuff like that, do you? Not at this stage. Not at this no. stage, yeah. So but if you added yourself to apply appliances online, mm-hmm. for example. Mm-hmm. I mean Yeah, we'd
1: probably be smart. You,
0: between the two of you, yeah, you're yeah. probably doing what everybody else is doing yeah. out there. So there's a good acquisition strategy. Totally. Should I talk and to I, John Winning. I, I, I know Herman very well. Um <laughs> he, he used to live across the road from his good mates of my sons. Um and I know his dad too. But the winnings is that, that's mm. a brilliant business appliance online. Mm. He's, he's helped me lots of times and doing lots of things over the years. John, um, but pro- let's just go back because I wanted to put it in context mm-hmm. so that, what you just said is really important. What the founders and/or now the new shareholders of the iconic have done is they said it's more important to chase market share than it is to chase profitability, mm-hmm. and that's a pretty typical thing of startups.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, you're still sort of a startup if you know what I mean. In- I think
1: we're an old startup, old startup and a young yeah. retailer. Yeah, yeah. And there's no one actually in our space, so we're now getting to write our own rule book which yeah. is exciting.
0: So when you say your rule book, mm-hmm. um, you're sort of now at the forefront of determining how online mm-hmm. online retail goes.
1: Yep. How customers are going to adjust to online retail, uh, what sort of online penetration there is. Like, yeah, COVID happened but – we were already there. Yeah. We, we had a nine-year head start on everybody else's all. So, um, And we we need to stay ahead of everybody else. And we will be a financially sustainable business but not at the expense of environmental sustainability and social justice and purpose and, and meaning. And we will also have that hyper-level growth at the top line. So we're not going to just pick one of those things anymore. I want it all, right? And, and as a business we want all of that.
0: So – Would you just explain who Mm. are now the shareholders or who who, who owns the Iconic? I mean, what's the ownership?
1: The Iconic is owned by Global Fashion Group and there are four businesses that make up Global Fashion Group. There's the Iconic in Australia, which I run. There's Zalora in Southeast Asia. There's Lamoda in the CIS States, uh, which we would know as like Russia and and some of those countries. And there is Defeati in South America. So those four brands make up Global Fashion Group in June or July, sorry, early July 2019, I had a one week old baby. We IPO'd uh, Global Fashion Group on the Frankfurt Stock Exchange. My understanding with them selecting Frankfurt is from a startup perspective, they find that investment group quite supportive of businesses like ours and, and in this sort of space and we're not so foreign. You know, there's a lot of other sort of um, like Zalando, the big global business in Germany that's similar to ours and you know they're the benchmark. You've got ASOS and stuff like that overseas. Here in Australia there's not much like the Iconic really. So we IPO'd on the Frankfurt Stock Exchange and, yeah, so we are a public company. So you're listed recently. in Germany? Yes.
0: yeah. Right, okay. So that's cool so, so mm. you're, but you're not listed here. No. Um, So which is? You know, like actually to be honest, it's a pretty tough listing in Australia because
1: mm.
0: if you're listed in Australia, it's a pretty tough environment, um, particularly if you're a startup mm. or a, an old startup as, as mm. you, you refer to yourself because it's always about you, every quarter you to lodge these things called 4Cs which are, you know, like your cash flow mm-hmm. and everybody concentrates on them because mm-hmm. everyone knows you're not making a lot of profit or maybe not making Mm. any profit. And it it becomes all about your your cash, your cash position, your cash position, and all of a sudden you start to concentrate on not growing market share Mm. and spending money, but you concentrate on always reporting your cash position, which actually holds you back. So in terms of you being held back Mm -hmm. in growing your business, The Iconic, um, where do you get your support from? Like who's sort of saying to you, Erica, it's okay to triple, quadruple Mm. the top line, the revenue Mm. line, even though we're not making a whole lot of money. Mm-hmm. Who tells you this stuff? I mean, so where do you our management from?
1: board. So yep. there's um, Patrick Schmidt, Christoph, Bachowitz, and Matthew Price. Those three make up the management board of Global Fashion Group and they're the people that we would um, consider our board, I guess, and they report through to a supervisory board, very European structure, but they report through to a supervisory board. And, you know, they're very much about – Right. We, of course we want to improve our profitability. Of course we want to be profitable and, and progress depends. further. Yeah. But actually we want to establish ourselves as well. Like we need to grow that top line. We need to get in there. And, and the moment for that is now with online. You know, we have spent nine years telling everybody that online shopping was a great thing to do. COVID came along and shared that responsibility with us and helped explain to everybody that online shopping was a great thing to do. And, and easy. That, yeah, and, and we need to... Ride that wave and we need to go after that. And I believe we will be the future of retail and we're expanding our category portfolio. We've just launched into the beauty category. So you'll start to see some of the the big beauty brands. Um, They only want to join if they see another one. So you've got to get the first one. Beauty drinking. Yeah, and we got the first one and they'll be joining. Well, we've got quite a few brands at the moment but we've got a L'Oreal group joining us in a few weeks' time now, which is great. Um, today, actually, as we speak, as I was walking up here, I screenshotted actually, I wanted to remember the moment, Country Road went live on our site and that's a really pivotal thing for me to – that I feel a real sense of achievement with that. We, we've tried to get that brand on board for years but think about a business that would maybe one day have seemed a competitor. They're an Australian brand. They've got all these stores around Australia. They're owned by DJ's group, Right. They're in department stores. They've got their own website. They chose to partner with us as the future of retail to say, we know what you guys do with data. We know how you can bring our brand to market. We want to share in that and we're going to, you know, partner with you. And so that that just shows you the shift. You know, online retail in Australia, and I know because I was in bricks and mortar throwing pot shots at online retail, they were seen as a nuisance, like they were disruptors but in an annoying way nuisance sort of way they'd undercut pricing or they'd, you know, just be really disruptive in the market, that's not the gig that we have anymore. Like we're actually now a fundamental part of the retail landscape and the future of the retail landscape and we're not a nuisance. We're not here, you know, this isn't like a drill. Like, you know, this this is the main game and we're here and we're ready.
0: What is the proposition f- for online retail apart from the fact that you've got a good array of mm-hmm. choice, mm-hmm. products, um, what is the proposition? Because the proposition retail, uh, bricks and mortar retail would say there's an experience. You can walk in a Harvey Norman store. There's going to be mm. a girl There's going to help me with my coffee machine. She's going to be able to mm. – this actually happened to me. Um, and she should be able to demonstrate it to me and uh, look me in the face. And like you said, you like to have one-on-one mm. conversations like mm-hmm. in, 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 in in real life as opposed to Zoom. Um, what is the proposition of retail to uh, – sorry, online retail to defeat – That is a greater proposition. What is it? I
1: I don't think we're here to kill bricks and mortar retail. I think we're here to coexist because I think people want a bit of both. And like I like to say as a business, we're seamless when you know what you want and Mm -hmm. inspiring when you don't. So when you know I need another pair of Asics Kayano running shoes in a size 10.
0: Because I know what they are.
1: Yeah, right. We will help you find that quickly, easily through the filtering and navigation on our site, bang, done. You can get it in three hours if you're in Sydney. You can get it same day. You can get it next day. I mean 80% of Australia can get their orders from us next day. So, you know, we'll get it to you quickly and we'll be competitive on price. And we'll also show you some other stuff just in case you're interested as well, like either other brands or, or things to wear with it. And then the inspiring when you don't know what you want is you've got a wedding to go to, you're not quite sure what you want to wear, here's the latest dresses that you might wear to a wedding and here's the shoes that could go with them, here's the makeup you might wear, here's the jewellery. So we play an inspiring role as well and I I think a lot of bricks and mortar retailers have forgotten about the inspiring sort of bit. I don't think it's easy to find what you want. I don't think it's easy to talk to someone in some of those uh, Bigger department stores, like they're, they're all concessioned out. And so you could talk to someone from that brand or yeah. someone from that brand. I know brand. I
0: recently experienced that. Yeah.
1: And concession,
0: yeah. I mean, basically, mm-hmm. you mean. The um, um, like brand know, owns the uh, space. George, uh, uh, Emporio Armani owns the yeah. space yeah. at David Jones. They're renting yeah. them space and then yeah, Emporium Armani. Yeah, that space. Or, so, but he'll only talk to me about Emporio yeah, Armani. Yeah. If I want to go over there to um, Boss,
1: mm. he can't Oh, no, own forget. Boss. Yeah, that's I'm going right. to find the boss, dude. Yeah. Yeah. And so I'm not sure that that's seamless or inspiring. And. I think there's oh, a, goal it's a that, fucking
0: punish. <laughs> I mean, it kills me but anyway. and I mean, it does.
1: Yeah. And I feel that my time, COVID taught me something, which is that my time is really precious and I want to do good stuff with my time and I don't want to go traipsing around a shopping centre all the time. Sometimes I might want to go do that just for some, I don't know, just entertainment value or whatever. But actually there's more often than not the opportunity for me to just get what I want online. And free my time up for other stuff, actually to wear the stuff that I buy and to go and have some fun. Um, and I believe my job at the Iconic is almost like a translator. Like I, I think everything that happens in bricks and mortar can happen in the online world. I've just got to map the the neural pathways between that activity there and that activity there. And so it might be fit, right? So when you go into a bricks and mortar store, you could get fit for a shoe or try on some clothes and see if they fit. There's a technology solution for that and we actually have got algorithms and suggested fits for you based on, right, tell us what size you are in these brands and then we'll recommend a size. We want to take that a step further. We're investing in some other technology in that sort of space. But there's a way that we can provide that for you without you having to actually go into a physical store.
0: One of the early um, negatives about online was the, the last mile was mm. delivery um for me um you guys have pretty much got it down pat these days I think it, online in its ultimate thing would be I go onto my uh my mobile phone or wherever it is mm. I'm where I'm buying the stuff from and um the stuff just jumps out of my phone and lands on my lands on me you know, mm. <laughs> you know like somehow you tra- <laughs> it transports from the, th- the phone <laughs> straight onto me but it, um that's the ultimate position and maybe one day they will have but um but but the bottom line is, it's got to get delivered, yeah. and I've got to get this shit, yeah. and um, I've got to g- get hold of it. And you know, the tr- the whole the the creation of a whole industry of couriers mm. has been unbelievably good. I mean, mm-hmm. I'm so happy about that because yeah. the humble courier yeah has become an a absolute necessity for you and for mm-hmm. me as yeah. a consumer, and for you as the vendor. Yeah, it's been amazing. It's been an amazing journey. I, I, I often look at look at it and. Uh, you know, the posty's gone out backwards and um, the couriers yeah. come, come to the fore. Yeah. So cool. And all of a sudden couriers become valuable. Mm-hmm. I think that online actually destroyed the bricks and mortar proposition. If I could just look at David Jones, um, and I don't want to pick on David Jones because, you know, the proposition from bricks and mortar is the experience, you know, and just in the old days used to go on David Jones. I remember was, my mum used to tell me when I was a kid. Um, there's a piano that I know there's still got a piano guy playing the piano up the store there. There was a restaurant, a cafe up the top. It was very nice food and all that sort of stuff. And there's always someone there to help you. But the problem is that online has, um, diminished their market share so much and their top line so much that they can't afford to actually employ the people they used to employ. So they can't have that over the top mm. and they completely owned it. Mm. They, they were the sort of monopolist or geopolist. Mm. You know, they, they owned the whole system. Um, them and Grace Brothers or, um, Myers, um, what happens online is they've actually taken that their ability away from them to actually execute on the proposition they make. So there is no, to me, there is no experience. And the experience is going to get less and less and less and less as time goes on, because as you, by definition, as your market share grows, as you take more sales or more of the top line away from the industry as such, they're going to be able to afford less and less um, touch points in terms of their customers and building that experience, um, which means ultimately bricks and mortar will be destroyed.
1: Why did they let it happen?
0: Store. I don't know.
1: Right. Online online didn't destroy bricks and mortar department stores. I think they had a good hand in that themselves and I, I don't know that they invested enough in that experience and the people. It's all great that they want to say now that they'd love to have that and they can't afford it but what about when they could afford it and they still didn't anyway? Like why did they present the opportunity for someone to come along and with mere couriers take their market share? Now,
0: Why I do you th- think it is? Because you worked at David Jones for a while. do you think I, it is? Yeah,
1: I I think they got a bit uh, complacent or maybe arrogant a bit. Maybe they just looked at this online thing and just went, oh, we'll be able to stop it happening. And they just thought they could use the muscle that they had. This to, won't survive. Yeah, this won't survive. We'll, we'll just tell suppliers not to sell to them. And that happened plenty at the iconic. We'll just tell suppliers Still not happens, to. Still happens, by the way. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and that'll be okay. And it's they're so busy looking at what this other thing is doing and they didn't spend that time looking at themselves. And I think that's a real shame and I... Because I, I love, you know, department stores or, but they presented an opportunity and now that opportunity is actually really exciting. And people don't want to just go and, you know, have to traipse up to the eighth floor <clears throat> to have a look for whatever it is that's relevant to them. And, you know, yeah, the guy playing the piano is nice, but who's got time for that no, stuff no. these days? You know, the. Back those days, you were talking about was when, you know, a lot of blokes played golf three days a week as well, all day. Who's got it's time sort of romantic.
0: It's a romantic yeah. thing. It's a romantic yeah, conjuring yeah. In, in, in most yep. of our minds. Yeah. It has some romance attached to it, and it is old school. And, you know, it's, it's sort of like going into. Um, Harrods in London or something like that. Yeah. it's a bit different here in Australia now, and I mean, I think it's a novelty. It's a novelty, and COVID, and it's not Harrods, by the way. Mm. It used no, no. to be with the beautiful Christmas time and all the stuff that used to have yeah. down here and here in Sydney, Elizabeth mm. Street, et cetera. But now they've only got one store. It just seems to me that they're forever sh- shrinking.
1: Look, I don't, I don't know the people that run those companies like at all, so um, I need to be very clear to say I'm not taking pot shots at them, it's it's more my experience as a customer. When mm. I go into the, I just walk past DJs here in the city and just thought there's nothing there that's actually making me think, oh, I might go in and have a look at that. And I think that's a shame. I think it's a lost opportunity. I mean, personally, I think Myers or DJ should have bought the Iconic about five or six years ago. That yeah. would have been futuristic to go maybe online is something and before the Iconic gets too big, let's buy it. Um, but they didn't, and thank God they didn't, because now I've got literally the best gig in Australia, and you know we're we're as I said leading people into the future of retail.
0: Where do you think online retail for what you guys sell, mm. your product lines, is going? I mean, what do, what do you see the future for the iconic?
1: I think we will be a real force to be reckoned with. We'll we've we've got a solid plan to get that business to about two billion in the next four years or in so revenue, yep, in it, yep. revenue. Yeah, in revenue. We're a profitable business and we'll continue to be. Those days are gone where we're, you know, a startup. Like as I said, we're an old startup, a young retailer. We get to write the rules for ourselves and not have to follow somebody else's playbook. So we get to say, well, what are some of the great things about the tried and tested older school retail principles? What are some of the entrepreneurial startup sort of things that we want to maintain? And that's actually my biggest challenge, actually, in the in the organization today. To maintain that entrepreneurial startup spirit in the business as we become bigger and older. Um, but let's protect that and combine that and create our own way forward. And there's things that really matter to us as a business, like sustainability, like we're people and planet positive in everything that we do. I don't have to force that onto the business. It is such an organic part of our DNA that our people, the average age of the Iconics, is 27. Right. So that is a great thing. That's cool. That is a great thing to be around. And these people give a shit about stuff, about the planet, about people. They want me to use my voice for that. They want the business to use its voice for that. We look at how we can help society. When the bushfires were on, we thought, okay, we can't write the biggest check to support all of those victims. What could we do? We could help the charities. We've got a massive fulfilment centre out in Yonora, 28,000 square metres, we could give them some space for free to sort all of their donations and things out. We could let people come into the city, drop stuff off to us and, and through our logistics network get that deployed out to where it's required. So we try and think a bit creatively and a bit differently but we want to have a purpose and a role in society and online I think gets seen as this invisible sort of thing that, oh, it's just this thing and, oh, they, <laughs> they don't have any people. It's, it's just a website. There are a lot of – we've got nearly 500 people in our offices and they, they you know, work so hard and so tirelessly to bring everything to life. Like every product that you see on our site, almost like 90% of those we photograph in, in-house. We've got um, studios out in Alexandria. Someone writes the content. Someone, you know, makes sure it's, it's looking beautiful on the site. We've got, you know, 500 people out in Unora picking and packing – like – From the time a customer places an order, for us to pick it, pack it, have it on the back dock ready for a courier is under eight minutes. Uh, That is phenomenal. Um, So don't try and change your mind um, (laughs) 10 minutes after you've ordered. There's no buyer's remorse. We've already picked it, packed it. It's on its way. Um, That's amazing. Eight minutes. And that's where people think, oh, we could do what the Iconic do. All we've got to do is pay Australia Post this fee and then, oh, we could be that fast as well. Well, there's a whole heap of stuff you've got to do on the other side. Like we have to live up to our part of the equation. For us to do three-hour delivery in Sydney, well, then that eight minutes is really critical because if you blow an hour of that three-hour window, picking and packing it and having it in a satchel and getting it to the back dock, that's a lot of pressure on the courier then. They've only got two hours to get that to the customer, that last mile piece. So there's a huge amount of work that happens in, in what we have to do We've got buyers, we've got marketing teams, we've got, I mean, we're equal parts tech company as we are a retail company. We've got tech engineers and people working in our business that just want to build cool new technical features. And that's that's something really exciting as well that, you know, we we're seen in that world alongside an Atlassian or a Canva. Like we all seem to swap resources amongst each other. Um, and and to be seen in that sort of world as well is really exciting. So
0: you're a much more complex business than say a traditional retailer. Yeah, much more complex yeah. in in terms of as you said earlier logistics, technology, um, the the data gathering or the the, mm. the data game that you play, so that you can make the um, uh, experience for me mm, more efficient.
1: Better. I mean there's so much data available in this day and age. The art is really um, choosing which parts are important and what to do with it. Yeah. And so it's it's not just the insights you get, it's the actionable insights and that's a real art in trying to, you know, the art and science. The science mm. is getting all of the data. The art is what out of all, what story is this data telling me? And it could be reports, it could be we run NPS surveys with customers regularly. I literally read every single verbatim response that we get from every single customer every month, as do the rest of the team, and... We're just scouring that for, yes, the, the financial and the numerical data, but then also the verbatims that we get from customers as well. Like we just want to know. We have an insatiable appetite to just listen and learn from what our customers are telling us.
0: Before we go to the close, I just want to ask you an important question to me anyway. Mm. And, I, and I just, sorry, I'll go on more question for you, but you had a six-year-old. You said, Down, um, mm. how important is it to you today that your six-year-old goes on that excursion?
1: Oh, uh, gosh, we could spend a whole other podcast on this. I have an inner conflict with this because it is so important to me that they don't feel the way I did. And then I have this conflict of but what if that made me what I am today? And I'm robbing them of that opportunity and, like, how could, like how do I reconcile that in my head? And
0: well, that's one want to know.
1: I you know, I, I end up, just say I teach them to be good people people as well, to have, like one of the proudest moments, my my boy is six, he, he's our eldest, and I spoke to his teacher recently and she said, like he's, he's actually quite a smart little kid, you know, every parent says that, but she said he was smart, great reader, great at this, great at that. But the thing I was most proud of is she said, Erica, he is so empathetic, like such empathy and such a young, and I was like. That is what I'm most proud of, that he's got that sense of empathy in him and awareness about other people that I think that's how I balance the robbing him of the opportunity to have the tough love uh, experiences. I'm ensuring that he doesn't take it for granted, that he does appreciate how fortunate he is and how lucky he is. He also sees how hard I work as well. And I think that's an important thing to teach him too, that, hey, Mum's got to work. When I'm upstairs in my home office, like you know, he'll sometimes come up and say, "Why, why do you have to do this?" I'm like, "You know that holiday we want to go on, or you know that you know the school you go to, or um, the excursion you want to go on, or the soccer boots that you got. How do you think we pay for that stuff?" And so, you know, I try and I try and instill that time will tell. He's only six. Talk to me about it. hard discussions day. to have. Yeah. Hard I discussions know. To have.
0: They're, they're, they're difficult conversations for the kids to appreciate and understand, mm. but it's a work in progress. I mean, I went through exactly the same thing with my kids. Did you? And, uh, you know, yeah, totally. Oh, four sons. And uh, I'm, I still have the conversations with them, and they're in their 30s. Mm. And one's, one turns 40 this year. So, like, I've been having those conversations with them, and they sort of get it. Um, yeah. But it's taken 20, 30 years. Yeah. Consistency. That yeah. works for me anyway. Yeah. I've been asked all the questions. Do you have one for me?
1: Yeah, you, you mentioned a couple of times about me being, you know, a female in a CEO role and, and that's, you know, rare. Um, you've been on a lot of boards and in a lot of, I guess, male-dominated environments. What do you think I could do to help women Put themselves forward, or you know, I think I do a lot. But what do you think I could do to help further the cause of women?
0: Or what would convince me, for example, mm. to to in, mm. put a woman on say on my, one of my boards? I mean, I, I, my listed board. Um, well, for someone like me, I'm, I'm I'm acutely aware of how valuable a woman can be on the board. Not just mm. just not just because the ASX wants it, and mm. that they, they have these sort of um, mandatory position mm. situations. But I did have women on my board and I've, you know, like I was involved with Alison Dean's many, many years ago when she was at um, uh, eBay. Mm. I, I, I guess someone like you just needs to keep talking to all the environments mm. such that we see that Eric is, I don't think you need to be out there saying, how important it is for us to have Erica yeah, on our yeah. board. Yeah. I think Erica just needs to stand there for herself and just demonstrate to us, well, here's someone who's a woman mm. who's actually pushed against the, the whole mm. male environment to become what she is yeah. and how valuable she is and what a yeah. great job she's doing. Uh, for, that's for me. I don't need someone to say to me, it's mandatory, you should do it, Mark, no matter what, because as soon as someone tells me something's mandatory, I don't want to do it. Um, I want to do things that work for me. And I, I also want to know where these people are.
1: Mm. So I don't
0: I, like right now. If I was, I, I would rather have women come and approach me, say, "Mark, like yeah, you did with, yeah, like, like you did with um, uh, uh, John Laws." Mm. Please come and tell me mm. that you would like to join my board, yeah, and tell me why,
1: yeah, yeah,
0: yeah, because that's what you've done all your life. Mm. You yeah. push yourself into that position, yeah. and maybe just telling that story—that's
1: so the confidence. So that's what we need to drive with. So that's what I could be telling other women to just be confident. in.
0: Because people know. like me, I, I can only speak for myself, but people like me, I would absolutely welcome someone mm. onto my board that can bring something new to the board. Yeah. But particularly if they were really wanted to join my board, mm. you know, like they really wanted, they threw the rock over yeah. whatever it is. I don't mean in that sense, but show me that they did want to join my business. Yeah. yeah. And no one's actually ever approached me in that regard. Mm. Um, no one's ever done it. I mean, I have had women on my board. Up until two years ago, I always had a, at least one, we had three board members, one woman on my board. Mm. Um, and they've all come from Channel 9. So they were Channel 9 people. Right. Because um, Channel 9 always had females in those roles. Yeah. And they would always have their board representation in terms of their shareholding on my business, because they own part of my business. Mm. They always had, they would put a woman on my board. And they were fantastic. They they really they were mm. and I don't like saying they're fantastic. It sounds like oh wow, surprised. Yeah, that it was a
1: novelty. Yeah, no, but, you're not saying that. I'm not saying, but <clears> it was
0: it was no issue. It was fantastic. But that was someone asked me, could this person come on my board? Yeah, as, yeah, as, as a, their to representative. The themselves. So I think that story that you're told, and I know it sounds really trite and commonplace. That story you're told about the the John Laws experience, <laughs> dumbed down. That's sort of what I think women need to do. Don't stand back.
1: Mm. If you yeah. think
0: you should be somewhere and you Throw want to get the there, ring. go do it mm-hmm. and say it. Yep. And come and tell me uh, and or, or let me at least know you're in the game.
1: Yeah, yeah. Okay, good.
0: Erica, you're amazing. Thanks
1: for Oh, much. thank you very much. Thanks for listening to The Mentor. Audio and production is by Jess Morley and production assistants Jonathan Leondis.